0: The war in Israel hits home here in South Florida. Republicans want to fold courts in the Keys into Miami Circuit. And Miami Beach wants to put skyscrapers next to Art Deco. This is the South Florida Roundup. I'm your host, Tim Paget. In the next hour, we'll speak with a respected former Middle East correspondent here to help make sense of the tragic conflict now raging in Israel and how it affects our local Jewish and Arab communities. We'll also examine the Florida House Speaker's attempt to reduce the number of the state's judicial circuits. And we'll ask, is this about justice or gerrymandering? And we'll look at whether Miami Beach is spoiling its celebrated historic look with more luxury condo towers. All this coming up right after the news. I'm Tim Padgett. Welcome to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Bienvenidos, bienveni, benvindo. By now, we're all aware of the horrific slaughter of innocent people that the militant terrorist group Hamas committed in Israel last weekend, and the brutal counterattack Israel is now waging in the Gaza Strip, the Palestinian zone that is Hamas's base. It's the latest violence to erupt from the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, but it's the worst in half a century. And because we have such large Jewish and Muslim communities here in South Florida, it's a tragedy we're straining to understand, if not find a way to solve. So it helps a lot to have someone here like Eileen Prusher to turn to. Prusher is a respected former Middle East correspondent for media like the Christian Science Monitor and Time Magazine. She's now a journalism professor at Florida Atlantic University in Boca Raton. She's a member of the Jewish community here, but she's also someone who has worked hard to see the Arab and Muslim perspectives. Prusher joins me now to help us make sense of a war that could drag on for some time. What's your own perspective on the East Calamity? You can call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. You can also tweet us at WLRN. I advise you, however, that we will not take calls that stoke either anti-Jewish or anti-Muslim hatred, period. Eileen Prussia, thanks for being with us.
1: Tim, it's a pleasure. I'm really glad you asked me to join you today.
0: Thank you. I know that you have family and friends in Israel and our thoughts are with them. What are you hearing from Israel about how people there are coping with what's happened?
1: Honestly, I I got a little bit of a chill as you said it. Um, The truth is I, I spent about 16 years of my life in Israel. Um, as as a journalist, but also just as a as a person. I married an Israeli. So right. uh, through marrying him, I, I uh, suddenly had a lot of family in Israel where as I hadn't before. Um, and it's just a horrific time. I have some friends whose son was at that music festival who uh, is missing. In fact, his mother Rachel Goldberg has an uh, an op ed in today's New York Times. Uh, I have um, I've been hearing from my friends who have teenagers who are usually in youth groups having fun and you know doing like Boy Scout stuff, and now they're uh, being enlisted to dig graves because there's just not uh, uh, you know enough uh you know readiness for for all the the graves and the funerals um it's it's just a harrowing time all around uh you know for my my friends and and family there Um, and I, and I, you know, have, uh, friends in Gaza as well, because as a journalist, I used to go into Gaza, uh, somewhat frequently for many years. And, um, it's, uh, it's just a really painful time. And as you said, Tim, it doesn't look like we're getting out of it anytime soon. Right.
0: And our thoughts are also with Palestinians in Gaza, obviously the brunt of the war now is focused on that strip of territory in Southwest Israel that is Hamas's base of operations. Israel is now ordering a million Palestinians to evacuate Gaza in the next 24 hours before it starts an offensive there. And so I wanted to ask you, Eileen, if you think that's even possible.
1: I wouldn't say that it's possible in terms of, you know, where will they go? There aren't, you know, really shelters. I mean, there are people who shelter at times like this in in U.N. schools, but many of them have been damaged I mean, I think what it tells us is that uh, there's going to be a ground offensive. And the truth is that northern Gaza for many years has been uh, used as a launch pad. I mean, sadly, it's also a place of agriculture. I've gone down there and done stories about people Mm -hmm. who are farmers who run strawberry fields, uh, but Hamas... Um, you know, terrorists have come in and basically used that territory uh, to launch rockets into Israel. Um, And, you know, and of course, you know, the the um, technological Uh, You know, abilities of Hamas have changed, you know, radically over the past decade. You know, we used to sometimes refer to them as like homemade rockets because they were making rockets out of, you know, pipe and maybe, you know, if Mm -hmm. it landed on a car, you know, someone was in it, you know, it might kill them. But most of the time they were just landing in open fields. They had no direction. Um, you know now, you know the the capabilities that they have, um, assisted by Iran, uh, you know have have been a you know complete not just a game changer, but you know it, it blew up the playbook. Right. Uh, so I guess it makes sense that they the Israeli army is asking people to get out of northern Gaza um, because they will go in in that direction because that those areas are used yeah. uh, by Hamas to you know launch a, missiles on Israel. Yeah,
0: it's a stronghold. Um, and, and as, as a foreign correspondent, as you mentioned, Eileen, you often reported in Gaza. Help us understand the dynamic between Hamas and the the Palestinians who populate that region.
1: Well, you know, there was a time when uh, Palestinians in Gaza were sort of divided between Hamas and Fatah, which is, uh, you know, the, the name of like the PLO's main political faction. Mm-hmm. And you could, you know, clearly identify people as such. Uh, and you know, the last time there were Palestinian elections was two thousand and six. Um Hamas suddenly won those. It was kind right. of a shock. At the it time. was
0: it was a shock, yeah. I remember yeah.
1: And, and then and then Hamas kind of took over militarily. Um and you know, it's no longer a place where you could safely Criticize anything Hamas does, and you know, and, and expect to you know live to see the next day. Yeah. Um, so it can be very hard to you know get a really accurate reading on on public sentiment. You know, life in Gaza has been horrible for a long time under under the closures. But I personally know from my years of going in there that there are lots of people there who didn't like Hamas, who never wanted to be ruled by Hamas, and. Right. Uh, they're, they're sort so, of stuck with
0: it. So I want to ask you uh, in that regard, how has Hamas been able to gain so much authority in Gaza? I mean, is this a case of the Israeli government's controversial treatment of Palestinians pushing them into the arms of Hamas? Or is it more a case of Hamas simply being able to fill a vacuum of leadership in the Palestinian community or, or is it both?
1: Well, I, I think it's it's pretty um, complicated, but the truth is, you know, it's it. Hamas has become like a totalitarian regime now in Gaza, um, n- not you know for for one reason in particular or something, and specifically that that Israel is doing, but. Um, know fatah or the plo you know has absolutely no power in gaza anymore it only exists really in the west bank um so you know hamas kind of like operates unchallenged in gaza now except for other um islamic militant factions such as islamic jihad or some other like smaller global jihadist groups um and you know, I, I think there are a lot of people who would love to have an alternative, but don't see their their way to one. You know, there's mm-hmm. it's it's kind of a closed society. It's hard to get in or out. Um, and um and you know, it's 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 really quite sad because um, you know, amidst this, you know, there's uh, been, you know, so much deprivation. I think that there's a generation growing up only really knowing Hamas in charge. Um, And, you know, and I would say that Hamas has changed too. They used to kind of present themselves as, you know, having like a more you know rational wing of their organization that was like the political wing, and then they had their military wing. Um, And they, you know, I think put a good spin on themselves for years to make it sound like that they only wanted to attack soldiers. I think, in fact, one of their leaders um, said this week uh this was only targeting soldiers but we we clearly know that oh, that, that was not the case i mean you know yeah. 260 people at a music festival alone um right and know, with it, and with video really evidence
0: bad. to back it up on un, 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 uh, unfortunately yeah
1: of course and going house to house in these kibbutzim along the border yeah. and you know killing people house to house you know it, it, it's clear um but that, you know they've so, 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 uh, part of this
0: I'm sorry, so so Hamas has really changed over the years in your estimation in that regard in, in terms of you know, sort of dropping its moderate image and just, just going to the more extreme militant terrorist approach.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't want to say that they were ever necessarily moderate, but right, they were, right. uh, they were portraying themselves as also right, as they were portraying themselves. Yeah, uh-huh. exactly, exactly. And they would would also, you know, engage in things like they would run things like clinics and kindergartens, and they filled in the gaps where the Palestinian authority, which was meant to be like, you know, a government run by the PLO, uh, where they were failing, um, you know, Hamas was right. stepping in and offering things like, you know, cl- you know, clinics and schools. Uh And they, you know, they, I think mm-hmm. they did, sadly, you know, succeed in winning some hearts and, hearts minds, and minds that way. But, um, and, you know, and they just changed, you know, they got more radical and Iran has had a, a role in that as well. It has to be said, um, yeah. you know, both and, both in their orientation and in their, um, you know, the technological capabilities that they're getting and their assistance from Iran. I mean, they, they, they right. publicly thanked Iran for the help but, uh, and gave them credit for it.
0: But why did Hamas pick this particular moment for the monstrous attack it staged last weekend, do you think?
1: I think there are multiple reasons. Uh, The one that I would put first and foremost is that um, they were working up to this for a while. So it certainly was not something they thought, oh, we see a good window of time, you know, a week ago. Um, But Israel has been moving closer to reaching a recognition deal with Saudi Arabia. And of course, America was supporting that. It was very close to happening. And I think um, the uh, in particular hamas and and you know palestinians in general mm-hmm. uh you know feel left out of the uh of what's happening in the region um and and basically want to show that they are still rev- relevant and can cause havoc um so you know this certainly is something that you know uh, has upset the whole region uh mm-hmm. will torpedo any progress in an israeli saudi deal yeah. um and it also has echoes of history right we have to remember um you know some people will remember that uh you know october 1973 was the start of mm-hmm. what israelis call the yom kippur war and uh people in the arab world will just refer to it as the october war uh but it was literally 50 years and a day uh that this attack was launched mm-hmm. yeah. um so one feels this kind of echoes of um, history, revenge, etc. cetera, uh, by choosing this date mm-hmm. in particular.
0: Now, Hamas abducted about 150 Israelis, whom they're now using as hostages and human shields. As the IDF, or Israeli Defense Forces, gear up for this offensive in Gaza, how does that affect the nature of the war we're going to see unfold there now?
1: Yeah, I mean it it is a really um you know harrowing situation for those um you know those people who you know some people are still not sure if their loved ones were were kidnapped or not uh but people they haven't been able to trace you know are there probably and you know Hamas has said you know that they will start they might start executing Hostages, if Israel doesn't give them warning about attacks, which might be part of the reason for the one-day warning to uh, leave northern Gaza. Um, but you know, it, traditionally, you know, Israel has had a policy of, of you know, working to make sure that any Israeli held in captivity would be released. Um, I covered the uh, story of Gilad Shalit, who was an Israeli soldier who was kidnapped and held for five years. And eventually his release was negotiated on the condition that Israel would release about a thousand Palestinian prisoners. Right. Um, but when you're talking about 150 people and an act of war going on, uh, I think there's been, from all my you know sources and my reading, mm-hmm. there has been some debate in the Israeli cabinet about what kind of war should be waged with these captives being held. Yeah. Uh, and the decision was, you know, the country is really, you know, under attack in a way it has never been before. And it, yeah. it can't not um you know defend itself and and Mm -hmm. hit back at Hamas so it it has to wage this war even with those hostages there which is is quite tragic because you know some of them uh many of them may not make it out Mm -hmm. um I think eventually if we ever do get to a ceasefire then obviously uh an exchange of um hostages and uh prisoners you know would be part of those negotiations Um, but it seems like that's still quite a ways off
0: I'm Tim Padgett. You're listening to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We're talking about the war this week in Israel and its impact here. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Eileen. What do you feel is the most important thing we too often fail to understand about the Palestinians themselves, whom you got to know, obviously, in your years of reporting there? I mean, at the end of the day, yes, this is about defending Israel's right to exist. But this is also about the Palestinians and their right to exist. You told me earlier that thanks to Israeli government policies, Gaza is often described as a, quote, open air prison for Palestinians. How should the world be approaching that facet of this conflict better?
1: Well, you know, I guess I would say, you know, uh, you know, initially Gaza was a place where um, Israelis went in there sometimes to go shopping and buy vegetables. And a lot of uh, Gazans would come into Israel to work Uh, with the with the advent and and ascendancy of Hamas you had a situation where Israel said well if you're not going to recognize our existence and you're going to keep blowing up our buses or sending missiles over the border we're just going to close that border um and interestingly Egypt closed its border with with uh uh the Gaza strip as well mm-hmm. um so it does create a situation that you know in in some definitions uh you know w- really fits that description of being um you know an open air prison it's very difficult to get in and out uh i do know of you know a lot of cases where uh, you know, people make humanitarian appeals often for medical reasons and are able to get into um to Israel for medical care. So you know, there are like individual cases where that happens all the time. And oddly enough, a week before this attack, uh there was some direct engagement uh between Israel and Hamas in which, Uh, We, you know, the Israelis understood, as far as I am am reading in the Haaretz newspaper, uh, that Hamas had no interest in an attack now that wants to alleviate the suffering uh, and the economic deprivation in Gaza, and therefore Israel uh, open the border to more workers, a certain number of people who have permits to come in and and uh, as as basically day laborers from Gaza into Israel, and that number was lifted. So supposedly they were easing the closure. And if you could see my hands right now, you'd see the air quotes. You know, it it's still uh you know a closed territory, but letting mm-hmm. more workers come into Israel so that they could uh you know earn money for their families. You know, you know right. some goods usually you know get in, um, but it is still a territory that Israel. Uh, generally speaking, controls, right? By seeing, you know, the airspace, et cetera, around it. Um, so you know, Gazans would be free to move around inside Gaza, um, but you know, not to get out of Gaza. And you can meet no. people who have never been out or haven't mm-hmm. haven't been out in twenty years. Right. But- um, and I, I think it was a, like let's just manage this as opposed to right. let's solve this. I think that was the attitude mm-hmm. of all the leaders for years, and and that kind of blew up in everyone's faces. That this is mm-hmm. I, I'm not sure if I know what the solution is, Tim. I thought I knew twenty five years ago <laughs> right. when they you know when they signed the Oslo Accords thirty yeah. years ago. It was very exciting and optimistic. It's hard to see now, but what we do know is just kind of leaving it as an as is Uh situation in Gaza with the borders being closed is is not a, you know, a workable long term solution. But from
0: from your work there, what would you say is the biggest thing the Palestinians and the Arab world don't understand about the Israelis and the Jewish situation? I, I guess, in other words, you have the Palestinians. How have they often undermined their own cause in that respect, the cause of the creation of their own state, for example?
1: I I would say that they may have, you know, I would say, you know, a lot of Israelis sometimes don't understand or the rest of the world won't understand the Palestinian attachment to land um, to Jerusalem, Uh, the extent to which, um, uh, you know, concerns about, you know, Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem. uh, They're calling that, you know, in Arabic, the Al-Aqsa Flood, this this attack, you know, has a way of, um, you know, appealing to a lot of Palestinians, um, you know, religious emotions. I think Palestinians probably, you know, don't understand, um, you know, Israel's sense of um, of insecurity, of even of generational trauma. I mean, there are people right. this week, I'm sure you're seeing it, who are tweeting, mm-hmm. you know, never again and then crossing out the never, that it feels like, a, yeah. you know, a ma- comparable to a massacre in, 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 in the Holocaust or a pogrom in, in Russia. Yeah. Um, um, so I, I think that, you know, yeah. yes, the, the sides do fail to understand each other um, on these points. And, and it, and it, mm-hmm. you know, it's sad because it doesn't bring us um, closer no. to the, you know, no. to the reconciliation that we thought was possible.
0: No, nowhere near it. Ago. Yeah. Eileen, unfortunately, for time, we'll have to leave it there. Uh, Eileen Prusher is a former Middle East correspondent and now a journalism professor at Florida Atlantic University. Eileen, thanks as always.
1: Thank you so much, Tim.
0: Still to come, why some Republican leaders are trying to eliminate Florida judicial circuits, including the Keys. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Padgett. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Few people noticed back in June when the Speaker of the Florida House of Representatives, Republican Paul Renner, urged the state Supreme Court to eliminate and consolidate several of the state's 20 judicial circuits. The Supreme Court now has a committee studying the proposal. It's meeting today, in fact, and it will make a recommendation to the legislature in December. Renner says this is about streamlining Florida's court system and cutting taxpayer costs. But opponents of his plan, including many Republicans, call it needless meddling in the state's judicial system. And Democrats call it a bald attempt by right-wing GOP Governor Ron DeSantis to make sure more Republicans get elected as state attorneys and judges. Among the judicial circuits that could get scrapped is the 16th, the one that belongs to Monroe County and the Keys. And officials there are strongly opposed to Renner's plan because they argue it would strip the community of its particular judicial needs. So is this really about Florida's judiciary or gerrymandering? Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Joining me now is a Republican who opposes the Judicial Circuit Consolidation Plan, State Representative James Moody, who represents the Keys. Representative Moody, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me on today. We invited Speaker Renner to join us on the program today, but he declined. I do, however, want to read parts of a statement he sent us about his rationale for this proposal. He says, quote, The population in Florida has more than tripled since the last time these districts were reviewed in 1969, and where people live within our state is also very different. So we want to explore economies of scale as well as potentially harness greater efficiencies. This is a responsible first step to understanding whether we can optimize our court system to best serve Floridians in the 21st century, end quote. So, Representative Moody, why do you think Speaker Renner is pushing this consolidation of state judicial circuits?
2: Well, you know, I'll be honest. I read about like everybody else when it first hit the papers. Um, I I clearly understand probably where he's coming from on that. I'm not going to sit here and say I know why this is being done because I really don't. I don't think any of us know exactly, but I think uh, Speaker's statement there indicates that he believes and, and maybe leadership believes that, it, it would be benefit to the citizens of the state overall. But the problem is that I, th- I think the districts are so dynamically different in different needs. And I, and I think that at the end of the day, um, I hate to say it, but what's not broken, you shouldn't mess with. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, sort of just, right. I, I don't see the rhyme or reason. I, I mean, I can clearly understand
0: why they want to, want to think about it, but at the mm-hmm. end of the day, I don't think it's a great idea. Why? Why does he keep pushing it, meaning Speaker Renner, when so many Republicans, like yourself, as you just said, have made it clear you not only think it's unnecessary, but that it could actually create more problems and less judicial efficiencies for Floridians in the 21st century? Well, I, I'm sure that it's continuing on. And, you know, once once it
2: gets in motion, I think obviously they're going to follow through with it. Um, I, I like to believe that the silver linings are out there that the at the end of the day, the the committee will will say this is not a great idea, or maybe have some some morphed, some maybe morph some of the districts that are perhaps maybe need could be consolidated. Because right. I don't know that much about other districts. I'll be honest. Right. but All is- I know about is Monroe County's districts. I have lifelong resident here. You know. Right. And um, knowing our needs is and what we need from our leadership down here. Right. Well, let's
0: let's let's talk side. about let's talk about those particularly. As I mentioned, the 16th Judicial Circuit, which serves the Keys, would likely be right. folded into the Miami-Dade Judicial Circuit if this plan goes through. Is it correct to say that you and many other folks in Monroe County adamantly oppose that because you feel it would deprive the Keys of being able to bring its own judicial concerns to its courts?
2: Uh, absolutely. I think I think that ultimately is why uh, Monroe County standing so strong on this issue. Um, you know, you think about the keys in Monroe County, it's a huge geographical area, but yet it's really just 120 miles long and roughly a half a mile wide. So the fact that we would not have any more elected officials because we couldn't win an election from down here. Mm-hmm. So every, every every election would be sort of out of the day County area. Right. We wouldn't have not to say that who wins elections up there wouldn't have an understanding of the law because the law is the law, but at the end of the day, have an understanding of how you apply the law as it relates to the districts you're, you're representing. And for us, like natural resources is the big thing here. We are mm-hmm. very fortunate not to have a tremendous amount of, of violent crime uh, because it's one way street out of here. It's pretty easy to catch the bad guys in theory, <laughs> right, yeah. um, you know, mm-hmm. sort of put the bridge up kind of attitude like uh-huh. they used to do when I was a kid. Yeah, uh, But, but that said, you know, we, we have a great, Judicial process in place right now, really dominated by Republican Party. So it's not about Democrats, or Republicans. For me, this is about somebody in Key West that may have to go to Miami for a court date, or a right. judge that may have to go to Key West. Those are just not practical. That's just not practical applications. But, but there, the there are
0: also concerns. And you, you've brought this up. I, I've seen in, in, in press accounts that, for, for example, when we're talking about the vital tourism industry in the Keys, um, right. when we talk about those particular judicial concerns of your bailiwick there, uh, for example, I think one of the examples you pointed out is uh, how uh, people get punished for uh, overfishing, for example. Is something that really stands out for the Keys, no?
2: Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I think that you know, if you look at our the record of of what FWC and our local sheriff's department and and you and, uh, state attorney Ward accomplishes, look, resources are everything to the Florida Keys. We are an area of critical state concern. We're a national marine sanctuary. We have all the ABCs in the world attached to us, and there's a reason for that. And part of part of those reasoning, part of the reasoning is that if we don't protect our resources, we won't be anything down here. I mean, look, we right. need to have. So I'm um, just. I guess the fear factor is that you know what's five short snappers? Well, probably not in the big deal of life, worth ten years in prison. But five short snappers could could impact the long term resources that again draw our tourists here. Um, as I mentioned like, several occasions. You know, we're not just prosecuting 86,000 people. And I think that's the key there is I see 86,000 people live in Monroe County. Um, So obviously we're a small population, but we have have upwards of 5 million people travel through here. So they're, they're not really doing a lot to us or really working right and with so a large
0: number of people so your basic argument is you need your own judicial circuit there to be sensitive to your own particular judicial needs that you have just been pointing out such as how you deal with the violation of natural resources in a zone that depends so much on its uh natural resources for its economic survival
2: Absolutely, uh, and again, uh, you know, we 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 contribute heavily to the state of Florida from a sales tax standpoint. All of which comes back to why do people come here? Our natural resources, our beauty, right. the friendliness of the Florida Keys, and honestly, at the end of the day, it's just a great place to be. And we don't That's have right. a lot of crime, so you feel relatively safe coming to the Keys. Mm-hmm. That's not to say we don't have crime. I won't I won't gloss that over. We do have crime, mm-hmm. and it's punished. It's punished and right. uh, quite severely. Honestly, they they, they right. don't.
0: They take it very seriously, punishing bad guys here. I'm Tim Padgett. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We're talking about a Republican plan to eliminate several of Florida's judicial circuits. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Representative Mooney, you're a Republican, but I wanted to ask you also about what Democrats are saying about this proposal to consolidate and reduce the number of judicial circuits in Florida, they call it just an extension of Governor DeSantis's ongoing efforts to impose state authority, meaning Republican state authority, they say, over local jurisdictions. Specifically, they say it's part of a scheme to reduce the number of Democrat state attorneys and judges who can be elected in Florida. Is is their fear valid? You know, I really can't speak for that
2: honestly. Um, okay, I have not heard anything of, of that nature. So you know but you know I understand everybody has their their fear factor involved and in if that's theirs that's theirs or you know I have friends on the other side of the aisle I think we're we get along great we work together uh, so certainly if that's if that's their thought process I'm going to obviously respect their, mm-hmm. their thought process Well I think
0: their their the thought process coming from the fact that we've already watched Governor DeSantis remove two democrat state attorneys in the past year Andrew Warren in Hillsborough County and most recently Monique Worrell in Orlando on grounds critics say were 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 political uh, more than judicial. Um, Let me ask you from from another perspective, then do 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 considerations like that perhaps not really serve uh, uh, Republicans like uh, House Speaker Renner when he's trying to sell a plan? Uh, to consolidate judicial circuits when when this sort of thing is going on that maybe it hurts the credibility of his plan?
2: Well, again, again, I think once once this ball got rolling, there was no way to stop it. And um, we'll, we'll see what the end result is from the committee. But at the end of the day, I think the, the, the key for me, and I did 10 years local government, everything is about life safety if you're an elected official. So that should be your your number one priority is to make sure people are safe and they, they have the resources and the infrastructure around them to make sure that they're safe on a daily basis. And if consolidation were to were to be, well, if the outcome of the consolidation was because of that, mm-hmm okay, we can probably live with that, but, but it needs it needs to be first and foremost, life safety. And I'm not so sure, again, consolidating particularly our district, mm-hmm. our judicial district into Dade County is beneficial to my constituents in Monroe County. And, mm-hmm. you know, I do represent a large, quite a large portion of my, uh, Dade County. Uh, I'm mostly unincorporated, right. but- Right. Um,
0: Including Homestead, know, for example, right? In, yeah, in, yeah, in, yeah. I got
2: half, we have Rep yeah. Shambles and I share about half of 50-50 in Homestead and mm-hmm. he has Florida City. So- and I have not talked to Rep. Shambles about this. I'm, not, You know, we go up again Sunday for committees, and I think the conversation will probably start to heat uh-huh. up a little bit up there,
0: but, uh, at but, least amongst ourselves. But why do you think the Florida Supreme Court decided that this proposal at least deserves, quote, careful study, as Justice Carlos Muniz, for example, said in response to uh, Speaker Renner's r- request?
2: Uh, and, and again, you know, I'm not a judicial guy. I'm not an attorney or anything, but, you know, they, they obviously, if they feel that they could streamline things, I could see, that I can understand that. I don't necessarily agree with it. Um, but again, not knowing how all these districts are made up and where consolidation may or may not be beneficial to the constituents. I mean, there may very well be areas of the state that could consolidate and and make it um, more practical, less expensive and still not reduce any benefits to the consumer, to the constituents. Mm-hmm. So I guess, I guess they have a job
0: to do and they are asked to do it and that's what they're doing. Do you think the committee, the state Supreme Court has set up and which as I mentioned is meeting today, do you think it'll find evidence that Florida's current judicial circuits set up needs to be streamlined this way? Based on what I've been hearing and particularly from
2: those who have attended several of these meetings, um, my understanding is no one in the state is in favor of this i think it really gets down again to every district has that their own nuances as how they apply the laws and and what again get back to the natural resources and the keys maybe it's something else in central florida something else in northwest florida but we're all you know one size doesn't fit all and if the state's going to grow i'm not even sure consolidating is the way to do it like I've often thought, why wouldn't you expand some of the districts and make them smaller and less less intense? Right, right. now they can't find help. Mm-hmm. I, I've been this will be my fourth session. I would I guarantee I will hear this again in my office, that every state attorney in this in the state is short on help. They can't keep their attorneys. Um, so consolidating, I don't think, benefits the con the mm-hmm. constituents. That's right. that's my fear that we're not going to benefit those who need to benefit the most. And that's you and I. Mm-hmm. to constituents who are who need to
0: be protected by law and order, right? But we're also talking about practical considerations, like I think you alluded to it earlier. Uh, people perhaps having to drive farther to get to courts if if this consolidation plan goes in, things of that nature. Is that also yeah. a, a big concern for you?
2: Oh, a, ma- a major concern. I can imagine living in Key West and having to do jury duty in South Dade. Yeah, that's a hundred and thirty-mile drive. That's a six-hour ride. Mm-hmm. That's not practical. Do you worry, Um,
0: however, that this is somehow a done deal, that no matter what recommendation is brought to the legislature in December, this plan will be pushed through because simply it's what Governor DeSantis wants?
2: No, I'm not concerned about
0: being a done deal. Okay. I'm really not. Uh, And
2: I say that because certainly I I will fight for my district. Uh, You know, I represent 120. I'm gonna fight for the constituents and really for, honestly, every constituent in the state of Florida, because Mm -hmm. that's what we are, state reps. But I don't think it's a done deal by any stretch of imagination. I think they've been tasked. I think Mm -hmm. they're going to they're going to complete that task. They're going to come up with some recommendations, and then that's where the rubber hits the road. And then we'll see, Mm -hmm. probably see more of an outcry if they were to recommend it. I I imagine. I I do understand we are leading the state in the number of letters sent to that committee. uh, All
0: right. (laughs) Well, we'll have to leave it there. State Representative James Mooney represents Florida's 120th legislative district, including the Keys. Mr. Mooney, many thanks. Thank you so much for having me. Still to come, should Miami Beach approve skyscrapers next to Art Deco Jewels? This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. <music> I'm Tim Paget. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Before the 1980s, the section of Miami Beach we call South Beach was little more than a glorified retirement community. Then the producers of the hit TV series Miami Vice discovered South Beach's Art Deco splendor, and suddenly the district became one of America's architectural jewels, a place ripe for tourism and historic preservation. But lately, a lot of Miami Beach denizens fear their beloved Art Deco character is under assault. Last month, owners of the Clevelander Hotel announced plans to turn that iconic Art Deco structure into a 30-story residential tower. This week, the Miami Beach Historic Preservation Board approved a proposal for a luxury high-rise condominium building that critics say would overshadow iconic Art Deco gems on that block, including the Sagamore, Delano, and National Hotels. So is South Beach's Art Deco identity disappearing? Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Joining me here in the studio to discuss this is WLRN reporter Veronica Saragovia. Veronica, how are you?
3: I'm all right, Tim. Thank you.
0: So tell us exactly what it was the Miami Beach Historic Preservation Board approved this week to be built just behind the Sagamore Hotel there at 17th and, and Collins right. that now has so many Art Deco preservationists so worried and and we should point out this the Sagamore and Ritz-Carlton's owners themselves are behind this project right
3: that's right so it's their it's a it's private property and these two hotel owner groups got together and what they've been approved to do is to build a like you mentioned, condominium, luxury condominium tower um, that will measure 183 feet. Okay. And they had pre- applied two years ago to build it and it was gonna be 200 feet. And the historic- And how, how
0: many stories more or less? No, it's about
3: 15. Okay. Yeah, okay. and um, now what they were told by this year, this current uh, Historic Preservation Board is that they need to set back the building at the 50 foot mark, uh, a bit 15 feet to the west, and that that would, um, in the hopes that that might help preserve the skyline view from the beach side, which hadn't really been thought of um, originally when these buildings were built, you couldn't really, there wasn't no boardwalk that is so popular mm-hmm. now, but now right. preservationists
0: want to preserve that view as well. But how specifically do they fear that this condominium tower and, and buildings like it will spoil the Art Deco character that's come to be such a South Beach hallmark? the issue Tim is that these
3: buildings were built in a very concentrated time period in the 30s and 40s and so mm-hmm. they there's a unity to them right. and that's what they fear is now going to change because if you look at the Delano or the National all these buildings they have these like turrets and domes and the roofs are very special and they're they have they don't have balconies and they have this rule of thirds where the the middle section is taller than the two on the side and there's a certain like uh, uh, harmony to harmony, these buildings, right. yes, and, and a
0: lot of and a lot of c- character and in the character. facades, yeah. Which yeah. which struck me then in your story this week, you quoted one lo- local architect who who complained that the proposed building would be too quote rectilinear for that Art Deco zone. What did he mean by that exactly?
3: Right, what he meant, I mean, if you look, let's say of course there are straight lines in the Delano or the National or the Sagamore, but they have this, there's sometimes like a very special design to them. There's maybe like special elements, um, curve Art Deco, there's a lot of curving lines. And these are buildings that were built specifically in Miami, on Miami Beach. They don't, you won't find them anywhere else. And so when you have a new tower with glass bells Balconies, and just a very different, very rigid, very
0: different look they, that they say just it's going to clash very much. Yeah, I remember people used to say that the, one of the wonderful things about the Fontainebleau Hotel, but much further to the north, is that it almost sort of represented a piece of beautiful coral uh, that, that that's so beautifully symbolized, uh, Miami Beach.
3: Right, yeah. these buildings really speak to time periods on Miami Beach, and now there's concerns that and this tower is gonna cast shadows on the pools of these hotels, and so there's just a lot of tension, even among the hotel owners on that block.
0: Right, would the reaction to this new building proposal have been as loud if we hadn't just had the owners of the Clevelander Hotel last month announce that they plan to turn that Art Deco jewel into a residential high-rise?
3: I think it still would have been loud because in the years that I've covered Miami Beach and as a South Floridian, I know that the preservationists are so passionate, it would have been loud anyway. But now we have a variety of different issues at play. The Clevelander issue is a law out of Tallahassee. Um, Previously, there was another law out of Tallahassee that would have allowed buildings in flood zones to come down. So that would have put all of Miami Beach in jeopardy. And this one is a product of local changes to zoning rules that Miami Beach is responsible for, and so there's just different issues going on and and preservationists
0: Mm -hmm. are worried. But why is Art Deco preservation, both the buildings themselves and the skyline aura that you've, you've been talking about, why is all of that so important to Miami Beach and particularly south beach i mean why would allowing these kinds of high-rise structures in that zone be so harmful not just aesthetically but but in so many other factors economically etc to in, in preservationist eyes
3: well a preservationist would tell you that the reason tourists, miami beach depends on its tourism industry and the reason that tourists come here it's not to go to Daytona it's not to go to Fort Lauderdale if you want a beach you can find one in Florida but they mm-hmm. come to Miami Beach because of the art deco and these buildings were have a very specific history started by Carl Fisher and then after you know when they were built they they look like some of them have round windows that nod to like the ships and they yeah. have a bit vi- you know the Art Deco first of all Miami Beach has the most art Deco of the entire country and they're very specific to Miami Beach so it's just Good like point. and yeah. there are soldiers um Carrie Grant stayed in one as a soldier there 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 is a lot of history from the 40s that will would be gone as these bu- not and uh, now to yeah. be clear these soldiers didn't stay in the buildings we're talking about on Collins the, mm-hmm. they stayed on the ones on ocean drive but, but there's just as little love for the history
0: of a this area. Of, a lot of style history yeah. there. I'm Tim Padgett. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We're talking about fears that Miami Beach's Art Deco character may be under threat. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Now, Veronica, the developers, though, of this luxury condo building that would tower over the Sagamore and other Art Deco uh, uh, buildings there argue that this sort of project is good for the South Beach community because it brings in wealthier residents and boosts Miami Beach's tax base. The preservationists say no, it will only lure in those part-time or seasonal snowbird residents who really aren't that invested in the community. Do both sides have a point
3: I both sides. So, so for instance, um, Peter Canovas, who's one of the owners of the Ritz Carlton, right. told me if you look at south of Fifth neighborhood, which is literally south of Fifth Street, mm-hmm. there it's mostly residential luxury condos. And that area is very well kept up. Right. And he says that the tax base coming from hotel beds isn't enough for Miami Beach to keep up this certain section of of South Beach, that you, the way you see it down, mm-hmm. and he said it's time. It's like even if it's thirty, a thirty-unit tower, it's time to start somewhere. And that if you look at the national trends, a lot of people with a lot of wealth are moving permanently to Florida. So he rejects that, that um, argument. Whereas the residents of the Deco Plage, which is a building right across from the Ritz Carlton, say pointed out the the stores to me. I mean, I know them because I live very close by. But there's an Alvin's and a Wings. These are Surf shops that sell shot glasses and postcards. There's a Ross dress for less. There's a Zara in the area. So the pe- million people who can afford multi million dollar apartments are not going to be shopping there, is their argument. Right. Mm-hmm. So are they really going to bring that much money? In? They say this is not right. Well,
0: developers like him also seem to argue that, that, that all this Art Deco fervor has created a sort of boutique urban snobbery in South Beach that tends to stunt the, the kind of city development you've just been talking about in the name of historical aesthetics. Are the pre prefer- the preservation is maybe being a bit too protective in 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 the eyes of, of of growing number of people?
3: Well, I mean, I I in going around around Miami Beach, I see that it's a mix of low income housing and wealthy individuals, and I think that's what Barbara Kappenman, who is the original person who fought so much for these buildings and, and mm-hmm. to protect them from coming down, argued that this is a, a area with a diversity that needs to be protected. And even if it's okay. beautiful, it didn't mean that lower income people or elderly versus young couldn't live there. And so I think that mm-hmm. would be gone. Um, right. So, so,
0: so there's a social factor there that's also being taken into consideration. Exactly. Uh, uh, by, by the preservation. By the preservation is, yeah. Now, the city And the developers, though, insist that an important part of this project would include funding to help improve and restore the neighboring Sagamore complex. So can they say they're actually contributing to the Art Deco mission in that regard?
3: They say that um, they are going to be doing that because they're going to be following through with a vision that Morris Lapidus had. He was the architect mm-hmm. of Lincoln Road to make and, it... And the
0: Fontainebleau that and I that, Exactly, exactly. earlier. Yeah. And right. that
3: it was his vision for it to be fully pedestrian and, and coming from the the easternmost section near the beach right. uh, onwards. And they uh, there's going to be restoration. There's going to be um, landscaping with money right. that has been I'm pledged. glad you,
0: because that's something we haven't pointed out yet, that, that the Lincoln Road complex is very much a part of this whole scheme, right.
3: right? And um, I should say that's what's mm-hmm. different. When it got rejected two years ago, it got mm-hmm. rejected because um, they said come back with something different that fits the area better. And now they reduced it by 18 feet, and plus they said it will put in four million dollars. The city then agreed to put in four million, and they're going to get the state to put in four million, and they'll have 12 million dollars to renovate the easternmost section, so the 100, 200, 300 blocks of Lincoln Road that have. Um, not been kept up the way the rest of Lincoln Road as you go west has.
0: So they've got some big preservationist money backing up their argument yeah, as well. Yeah, they do. And they say, I
3: mean, there were people who came to speak at the podium to say they're trying to run businesses in uh, in that area, and that it's hard because people have been leaving, and other stores have closed, and so they're saying you want us to help Miami Beach stay afloat, but we need help back. So that's that their side, and then others are saying, um, you know, what, for instance, the, the owner of the National Hotel, which is a neighbor of the Sagamore, said, "I'll put in if it's about money, I'll put in money." but not in exchange for a tower. So it's, mm-hmm. it's so divided, there's no middle ground. But
0: if we see this project go through, is there a high likelihood that we're going to probably then see more and more is this, is, I guess I'm asking You're touching is this on the, a trend that is the no.
3: biggest fear of the no. preservationists they're like this is just the beginning because there are already many examples I can name you the Versailles um, mm-hmm. even Faena that building that used to be a historic building next to that one there is a condo building so that all of these get renovated and restored in exchange for and Raleigh is the biggest one that I reported on and that's the one mm-hmm. that led Miami the developer asked for um, an ability to build a 200 foot tower and the city um, agreed to it and that was the beginning of now all these towers going up in this area.
0: Well finally Veronica I, I was struck by a quote in your story from one of the developers that he said that if South Beach doesn't start accommodating more residential structures like this the place will just become quote Las Vegas by the sea. Now what struck me though is that I, I ask myself: Do the preservationists, though, argue that that's exactly what will happen if you strip South Beach of its historical character? I Absolutely, mean, I, that's such a great point. It could you could look at
3: that both ways, and I think that he's frustrated by he said we could, we're just depending on hotel bed right. taxes, and mm-hmm. it's not working. It's not enough, and then the other side is just gonna see like a bunch of fancy towers that will cloud, you know, will uh, cover the, the, the line that they call it the crown jewel Mm -hmm. of Miami beach skyline. And so maybe it will look very much, I, big gaudy buildings, that's what they, they see it as.
0: And so when then do we expect a, a final then authorization? It's for, been for authorized. That's it. That's it. Okay. So
3: they will. They can now, the applicants apply for a building permit, unless somebody mm-hmm. one of the other nearby property owners files an appeal, which I haven't heard about yet. Otherwise, the city commission has nothing else to do, and this has been approved.
0: All right. Veronica Zaragovia is a WLRN reporter. Veronica, thanks as always.
3: Thank you so much, Tim.
0: Finally on the roundup, the weather app on my iPhone says the high temperature here tomorrow will be 93 in mid-October. It just adds insult to injury as we try to process the new normal of abnormal heat. And it's why next Tuesday, the Miami-Dade County Commission will vote on what would be Florida's first law to mandate worker protections against the increasingly infernal conditions we're experiencing in the age of climate change. The vote isn't without controversy, however, as this recent worker protest in downtown Miami calling for water, shade, and rest made clear. The ordinance originally triggered outdoor worker protections when the heat index reaches 90 degrees. But business lobbyists convinced the county commission to have them kick in when the actual temperature reaches 95 degrees. Labor activists hope to get that bar lowered again before Tuesday's vote. Either way, there is cool at the end of South Florida's long heat tunnel. A cold front is expected to bring our high temperatures down to the low 80s next week. That will do it for the South Florida Roundup. It's produced by Helen Acevedo with help from Polly Landis and Julia Cooper. Our engagement editor is Katie Cohen. Katie Munoz is our director of Original Live Programming. Our director of Enterprise Journalism is Jessica Bakeman. Mateus Sanchez is digital editor. Sergio Bustos is WLRN's vice president of news, the vice president of radio, and the show's technical supervisor is Peter J. Maherz. Richard Ives answers the phones. I'm Tim Paget. Have a great weekend, and thanks for listening. Gracias. Merci. Obrigado. WLRN Public Media.